Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Thursday, November 24th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the newly opened Parliament building in the Republic of Zimbabwe, which was built uh, by the People's Republic of China. Rwanda has announced a framework for a ceasefire in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel has been touring several world centers in the recent period. We'll have details on that as well. And uh, the Asian states are intensifying their diplomatic work in consideration of economic development objectives. In the second hour, we listen to a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, uh, Ethiopia. Finally, we look at the plight of the United States political prisoner and American Indian movement leader, Leonard Peltier. These features and others uh, will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to take a musical interlude uh, with Ali Farka Touré. Let's listen in. <laughs>
date back to the 1960s when China helped train and supply guerrilla fighters in the fight against white minority rule. And uh, in other news uh, taking place across the continent, uh, leaders called for a ceasefire to take effect later this week in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo following a summit in Angola on yesterday uh, that included uh, DRC's president and Rwanda's uh, foreign minister, but not the M23 rebels whose rapid advance has sharply escalated tensions between the two countries. In a statement, participants uh, said the Friday evening ceasefire would be followed by a rebel withdrawal from the major towns that are currently under M23 control, that is Bunagana, uh, Rushuru, and uh, Kiwanja. If M23 refuses to disengage and liberate all the territory they currently held, the East African Community Bloc heads of state will instruct the regional forces to prepare them into submission, uh, said the statement released following the summit in Angola. The contingent of Kenyan troops already has deployed to Eastern Congo as part of the regional force agreed to back agreed to back in June. It also uh, will eventually include two battalions from Uganda, two from Burundi, and one uh, from South Sudan. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, in regard to developments uh, in the Republic of Cuba, uh, Cuban uh, President uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel has paid a heartfelt tribute to the Soviet soldiers who fell in the Great Patriotic War. At around 11 a.m. local time on Monday, the head of state arrived at the tomb of the unknown soldier located in front of the Kremlin Wall. Hours earlier, he held a meeting with Gennady Andreyevich Zuganov, General Secretary of the Russian Communist Party, in the context of his official visit to this country. This is an opportunity to express the gratitude of the Communist Party of Cuba for the support the Cuban cause, said uh, the Cuban dignitary. Diaz-Canal conveyed a message, your brother Raul sends you a strong greeting. The president uh, took the opportunity to invite the Russian communist leader to the event on the balance of the world based on the conception of Cuban national hero Jose Marti and the historic leader of the revolution, Fidel Castro, to be held in Havana in January of 2023. For his part, Andreevich uh, expressed his joy at being able to receive and exchange ideas with the Cuban partisan leader. We have visited many countries in, in the Latin America region and have excellent working relations, but the Russian Communist Party has a special identification and commitment with Cuba, he said. The first secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Cuba began his activities in Moscow uh, last Sunday uh, with a meeting with the embassy staff and a representation of all the official titles of the Cuban state working in Russia. Miguel Diaz-Canal arrived on Saturday at the Nufkofo uh, airport in the capital of Russian Federation on an official visit and was to an invitation from his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. And finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, in Asia, a lead article uh, in uh, the Global Times uh, says uh, that China on Thursday announced even more military uh, 
and diplomatic activities with neighboring Asian countries following the country's defense chief's attendance of the 9th ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting Plus this week uh, in a move experts said will bolster trust, cooperation, and joint defense capability in the region, and which will build immunity against external instigations and fears that a Ukraine-like crisis could happen in the Asia-Pacific in the form of the Taiwan question or the South Sea-China issue. At the invitation of the Bangladesh Navy, the Chinese Navy will send a destroyer, Shagja, to participate in an international fleet review scheduled to be held in Bangladesh in early December and participate in related celebration activities, China's Ministry of National Defense said on Thursday. The armed forces of China and Laos will hold the third friendly border defense exchange in their border region in late November, announced Senior Colonel Wu Qian, a spokesperson for the Chinese Defense Ministry, at a regular press conference just this last past Thursday. And uh, <clears throat> with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. <clears throat> and uh, in concluding this segment of our program, <clears throat> we want to remind our listeners <clears throat> that the uh, Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday, uh, November 24th, uh, 2022. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. This is uh, Abayomi Azikri. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. I've got dreams, dreams to remember. I've got dreams, dreams to remember. Honey, I saw you there last night. Another man's arms holding you tight Nobody knows what I feel inside All I know, I walked away and cried I've got dreams, dreams to remember Listen to me I've got dreams, dreams Oh, you 
a friend But I saw him kiss you again and again These eyes of mine, they don't Welcome back. Yeah, that was the legendary Otis Redding uh, with the tune entitled Dreams to Remember. And uh, we're approaching uh, the 55th anniversary of the tragic death of Otis Redding in early December of 1967. Uh, he was traveling in a private aircraft, uh, which uh, went down uh, right outside of Madison, uh, Wisconsin, uh, leaving only one person out of the entire crew uh, still alive. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. Right now, we want to move into the uh, briefing earlier today uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, located in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, Let's listen to this briefing on the current uh, public health situation in Africa. Rwanda, and that is Dr. Daniel Ngamidje. He will also be joined by Professor Agnes Binagualo, who is the co-chairperson of the second international conference for public health in Africa. And she's the um, co-chair of the scientific uh, committee of that conference. And she has been for the years 2021 and 2022 and so she'll be joining us as well. And they will be talking about that upcoming conference, which is going to be held in Rwanda from the 13th to the 15th of December. Also online today, we may be joined by Dr. Merawi, who will be supporting Dr. Ogwell through this briefing today. 
So that's our exciting lineup. And um, of course, as usual, immediately after that, we will then go into our question and answer section. But for now, let me hand you over to Dr. Ogwell, who is going to be giving you the brief and the rundown of um, COVID-19 and other public health issues on the continent. Dr. Ogwell, it's over to you. Thank you very much, um, Wayne. Good morning, good afternoon, uh, good evening, wherever you're joining us from. And uh, I'm really pleased to um, welcome uh, His Excellency uh, Dr. Daniel Ngamiji, Minister of Health of uh, Rwanda, uh, to join us in the press uh, briefing today, and uh, Professor um, Agnes Binaguaho, who is co-chair of our conference for uh, International Public uh, International Conference of Public Health in Africa, uh, which we are holding later on today, and they will uh, be able to give us just a little bit more information how those preparations are going. So let me start from our side with um, um, the, the summary of um, the public health events of uh, significance on the continent uh, today. We have about um, uh, eight or so different public health events that are significant, but in total we have 21 that are going on on the continent. Uh, and as we've discussed before, quite a number don't reach the press, but we still deal with them on an active basis. And uh, today I want to give you a summary of two of um, uh, the eight, and that is COVID and then um, the Ebola virus outbreak in Uganda before we shift to the Conference of Public Health uh, in Africa. So <clears throat> as of today, um, we have um, uh, documented on the continent of Africa uh, just over 12.1 million uh, cases, and 95% of these have recovered. And unfortunately, we have lost uh, 256,128 individuals on the continent. The case fatality rate we are seeing on the continent for COVID stands still at 2.1%, which is nearly double the global average of 1.1%. So although our numbers are lower, um, we have seen um, comparatively uh, in proportion to the number of cases that we've documented, slightly more deaths than have been seen uh, at the global scale. Now let's see how we have... Um, uh, when we compare epidemiological week 46, and this is the week of 14th to 20th of November, we compare that with the epidemiological week 45, and that is the 7th and to 13th of November. We see that um, in the uh, new week, we have documented a total of 9,101 new cases of COVID-19 on the continent. And this is a 17.17% increase from the previous week. Um, we are also seeing that uh, all across the continent, the, the, I mean the, the different regions of the continent, the, um, the increase is uh, very um, comparable, um, as in each and every region is affected um, during this uh, new week. When we look at the number of deaths, though, we have documented in this new epi week a total of 42 new deaths, 42 new deaths. And this is a 36% increase when we compare to the previous week. Um, now, when we look at the four-week trend that is comparing um, the current four weeks, this is 24th October to 20th of November with the previous four weeks, 
we see that the number of new cases has increased by 18%. So um, there is a sustained um, gentle increase in the number of uh, uh, cases being documented. And when we look at the number of deaths also, during this four-week period, we are seeing a 24% average increase. So in general, on the continent, uh, we are seeing an increase in uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, cases. Um, when we look at uh, the past four weeks, um, we are seeing a few countries uh, who may have the possibility of beginning another uh, a new wave, um, but uh, we want to look at that for the next two or so weeks to see if it is a sustained wave or um, what we know in terms of control will come into play and will keep those numbers uh, low uh, quickly. For vaccination, um, so far we have uh, received 1.034 billion um, COVID-19 vaccine doses, and we have administered 799 million, which gives us a 77.3% administration rate for what we have received. So the numbers are going up, which is very good. The total coverage um, of um, fully vaccinated on the continent, for when we use the full population as um, the reference, then we are 26.11% of the total population. And this means that we have already vaccinated 363 million people on the continent since we started um, uh, this uh, vaccination uh, campaign. Um, and over the past two weeks, we have uh, vaccinated an additional 13.7 million people um, across uh, Africa. For booster doses, we still stand at 2.9%, and this means that nearly 41 million people on the continent have had their booster uh, doses. We continue to support our countries with the um, uh, COVID-19 vaccination campaigns. We continue to um, uh, secure what we need for the campaigns, whether it is uh, actual vaccines, it is the, um, the consumables that we need, it is experts that are going to support the countries, um, or um, uh, whether it is communicating with the public in a way that encourages them to come through and get their, vaccine, uh, their COVID-19 vaccines. We continue to support all um, our member states uh, who are in need of uh, that support. Let's move to uh, a summary of um, uh, the Ebola virus outbreak in Uganda now. Um, since um, the last brief, um, the good news is there have been no new confirmed cases or deaths of Ebola virus in Uganda. And I repeat that, it is significant that since the last briefing last week, we have not documented any new confirmed cases, neither have we documented any new confirmed deaths as a result of Ebola virus disease in Uganda. This means that um, uh, um, the engagement that the government, supported by a cross-section of partners, including Africa CDC, has been doing with the public, is uh, showing results, and we are quite encouraged uh, by this trend, um, uh, particularly looking at the high level of community engagement after we deployed the village health teams across the affected areas. Um, and um, right now, 
the last confirmed case was reported on the 14th of November, and uh, we um, very cautiously begin the countdown of um, uh, the last case that had been documented. But cumulatively from the beginning of this uh, Ebola outbreak in Uganda, we have 141 confirmed cases and 55 confirmed deaths uh, across nine districts uh, in that country. And this means that um, we have uh, lost about four out of every 10 cases uh, that have been confirmed to have uh, Ebola virus disease during this particular outbreak. Those are still too many people, um, considering that we have uh, a lot more knowledge how to manage um, these outbreaks uh, if they are discovered um, uh, early enough. And the tools that we need, um, particularly for this strain of uh, Ebola virus, are still not adequate. We don't have rapid tests. We don't have um, vaccines. Uh, so it is work that we need to continue to do to ensure that we have the full a suite of uh, tools that we need for um, uh, the Sudan uh, variant of uh, Ebola virus disease. Um, on a relatively more sad note is to note that um, uh, quite a number of healthcare workers have been affected by um, this particular outbreak this time. Um, 19 cases that we documented of health workers, seven of whom unfortunately passed away in the line of duty. Um, as something that we need to um, ensure doesn't happen into the future. Uh, we are uh, documenting very well um, areas that will need to be addressed to ensure that our health workers are fully um, are covered uh, during uh, their work in the front lines, uh, supporting and uh, uh, treating uh, our populations. Um, in summary for Uganda is coordination is playing a very big role in um, ensuring that the numbers are coming down. All uh, partners who are supporting the government are using one plan. Um, we have um, all um, been contributed to different synergistic aspects of uh, the, the response, and the government is fully in control of that, and we are very happy as Africa CDC to be providing support in laboratory um, areas in infection prevention and control, in uh, community engagement, sending out the village health teams to do good surveillance, and uh, of course uh, by supporting the neighboring countries depending on which um, um, areas uh, that they need uh, support. Um, so Wayne, these are the two um, specific updates that I wanted to share today before we move the discussion uh, to, the, uh, to the Conference of Public Health in Africa and invite the minister and, uh, and Agnes to, uh, to provide us with their uh, updates. Thank you very much, Wayne. Okay, thank you very much, Ahmed, for that uh, breakdown. Colleagues, as I've mentioned, um, we have uh, the minister, the Honorable Minister of Health for the Republic of Rwanda, Dr. Daniel Ngamije, and we're also being joined by Professor Agnes Binagualo, who is the co-chair of the scientific committee of that conference that will be happening in uh, uh, in Rwanda in December. So they are online, and it is a great pleasure right now for me to invite the Honorable Minister, Daniel Ngamije, to give us his breakdown of that particular conference. Honorable Minister, it's over to you. Thank you, Winnie. Uh... Professor Agnes, co-chair of the conference, and uh, Dr. Ahmed, 
I'm pleased to be with you on this call for the brief related to our conference. So uh, good morning, good evening, participants, wherever you are. We are really pleased to be uh, on this call, trying to give you most, most update information regarding uh, the conference. So as you know, this is the second uh, international conference on public health. Uh, it is organized by Africa CDC in the partnership with uh, the Ministry of Health of Rwanda. The conference is planned to start on 12 up to 15, but uh, there is a, a youth uh, pre-conference, which is also planned to start on 10 uh, December. It is an interesting event, as uh, you might anticipate, by reviewing the content of the conference. Uh, with uh, nine tracks, uh, with very interesting themes, uh, starting with uh, the track one, in relation with uh, the epidemiology, diagnostics, and the clinics management, we want to go through what we did and were able to do in most of our countries to reinforce our surveillance system and build capacity for diagnostics, for actual pandemics that we are facing, but also in the future, those pandemics that we expect. Part of the response is local production of uh, uh, commodities for diagnostics, therapeutics, and of course vaccines. And we have a track on it with different experts to tell us where we are uh, in this process of building local production capacity in our countries. We were able to see that uh, for a comprehensive response for COVID, and even now with Ebola in Uganda, you need a very strong resilient health system, which allows to go for universal coverage. We believe that we have a lot to share among participants and with experts who joined the conference. There is an interesting track related to women, women who are victims of these pandemics, more than probably male for different reasons, and they are there as recipient of intervention that we are doing in most of our health systems, but they are there also as provider of health services. And they are there also as the leaders. That's the reason of having two co-chairs of this uh, conference, which are very known professors, Professor Agnes and Professor Tenayt. And we have a lot of other ladies who are in strong position regarding public health interventions in Africa. There are some enabler factors that uh, through this conference we go through, and we use those, those enabler factors during COVID. Digitalization of our health system. We should go with technology, with all new uh, development regarding technologies. So digitalization of, 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 of the health sector, it's a strong enabler factor that uh, we should uh, discuss and see how we can customize it for the benefit of intervention in our countries. Another key enabler factor that uh, we'll discuss is this wide stakeholders engagement. The community, 
the public sector, the civil society, but also the private sector. This wide uh, stakeholder engagement is a strong track that we review and see what we can learn from each other. And finally, there are things we can't forget because they're there and unfortunately they remain for long. We have these uh, long-standing infection diseases, HIV, TB, and malaria. We face the risk of disruption of services as we are fighting COVID. We need to learn how we should avoid disruption of services if we need to manage any pandemic. NCDs, they're also there as a new health, public, public health challenge. Incidence of NCDs is increasing. So as we fight pandemics, as we are prepared for future pandemics, we need to make sure that we keep providing services for the prevention and the control of non-communicable disease. Uh, so I think all these themes, which will be part of the agenda of the conference, there is a lot we learn from researchers, scientists, uh, policymakers, civil societies, organizations. I think we can't miss this conference with all this uh, theme that will be discussed. In addition to that scientific component, then we'll enjoy Rwanda, we'll enjoy Kigali. We have a lot of social events. Uh, we'll have uh, uh, Kigali Night One. We'll have uh, a tour for Kigali. We have a lot of social events that you'll discover. Uh, we'll make sure that uh, the agenda is quite light to allow you to go out of the conference sittings and see uh, out of uh, Kigali Convention Center how look Kigali. Uh, and of course, uh, it will give an opportunity for a lot of interactions and build new partnerships. Given a lot of side events that uh, will be organized, uh, I can assure you that uh, people who will be attending uh, these three days, they will have a lot to share, to learn, uh, to build term of relationships. So I just want again to invite uh, all participants and request that uh, you, re you register and attend the conference uh, as soon as possible. You're welcome in Kigali. We are excited to give you good time. You'll have a nice experience in Kigali during this conference. Thank you, Winnie. Thank you very much, uh, Minister and uh, colleagues. You will have noticed that uh, Neke has posted the link for you to register for that conference and you can find it on the chat. All right, so now it is time for us to move on and give the floor to Professor Agnes Binagualo. And as I've said, she is the co-chair of the scientific committee of the upcoming conference. Prof, it's over to you. Uh, thank you, Winnie. Um, good, um, I don't know what time, I mean, the U.S. is the middle of the night, so I guess I'm going to say to everybody, good morning, Honorable Minister and everybody. So, uh, my update will be very brief and rapid because uh, the conference, the preparation is going very, very well. Uh, I follow it as a co-chair. Uh, I co-chair with uh, uh, Dr. Senait. Uh, and um, the, the people in charge are a, a team, a, a joint team from CDC Africa, 
and uh, from uh, uh, the Minister of Health in Rwanda. Uh, we are meeting every week and everything is on track. Uh, we have all, all the speakers have uh, confirmed and very, more than 70% of uh, abstract and speakers have confirmed. Uh, the last uh, response uh, waiting for today and uh, uh, we have alternatives uh, where we don't have uh, yet uh, an answer. So now the, the team on the ground that are preparing it, uh, the, the conference, side event and all the, uh, the major events are really on top of everything. Uh, as a co-chair, I can just say I'm very happy. Well-organized, dedicated team, coordination is very good. Uh, under the team of the Minister of Health uh, with the support of CDC Africa. So very, very, very promising. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Prof. Colleagues, it's time for us to have our question and answer section. I'm not seeing any um, hands going up. So I'm just going to be giving you the contact details for you to send in your questions. And that is our usual WhatsApp number, which is the plus 251-94-550-2310. Let me come back again with that number. It is the plus 251-94-550-2310. But you can also send in your questions through the question and answer platform, as well as come through live. So while we wait for um, for you colleagues to send in your questions, perhaps let me give um, one or two minutes to Dr. Merawi in case there is um, some additional detail that he would like uh, to add. Dr. Merawi. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Madam. Good morning. Good afternoon, uh, colleagues. So just to give a brief, I think Director have already addressed uh, some of the critical components. But uh, in addition, I think Africa CBC is uh, planning to uh, train over 800 um, laboratory workers on biosafety, biosecurity. This is one major component which will start next Monday. And we are also in preparation for next Monday to deploy around 2,000 village health team, which is really very critical in contact tracing and uh, tracking of uh, all health events, especially. And we are also closely working with the Ministry on sustainability of some of these interventions uh, beyond this uh, immediate response and uh, also in preparation for the upcoming festive seasons. Just, just to add uh, these two components, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Merawi. I'm just checking our platforms to see if we have any questions. I'm actually not seeing, all right, I've just seen, just give me a second, let me check if we have anyone wanting to ask a live question. Wayne, I could add one or two things here. All right, okay, please. Yeah. So first is um, all the time we're on this platform, we come with a lot of uh, 
discussions around uh, diseases, health emergencies, mm-hmm. and um, generally relatively uh, sad stories. And um, uh, today we've come with a very happy story. And uh, when I hear uh, my brother, uh, Minister Daniel Ngamije, saying that everything is set, not just for the formal part, but also for the informal part, it's a very happy um, um, uh, uh, story that we're bringing today. And when I uh, listen to Professor Abinagwao about how all the arrangements um, on the scientific side are all on cause, we are very pleased as Africa CDC that we can be able to come and discuss something beyond um, our core mandate, which usually is, uh, is health emergencies. Second thing that I would like to share is um, really the, the need for um, uh, the continent to rally around um, our events, uh, whether they are the, a conference like this, whether they are trainings that we are conducting across um, uh, different countries, um, whether it is planning, really African events, African activities, African institutions is really what is going to ensure that we are resilient enough so that next time any outbreak comes, we are able to arrest it quickly and contain it, or um, any time there is any challenge on the continent, the need to generate evidence, to share it, uh, then we have our own platforms that we are using here uh, on the continent and very effectively at that. So it is a very happy discussion uh, today. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, thank you. I, I'm uh, sure Mr. Mohammed, if, uh, if I can add something, if you remember the 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 pillar of creating this in, uh, conference in the beginning is to really show to Africans first, uh, to uh, to our people, uh, to our uh, uh, on the continent, what the continent is capable to do, what the continent is, what we have, and what we miss. Uh, and um, uh, so it's very important to don't forget that. And also how by creating a resilient health system based on primary care, we can build the the, the health sector on our continent. So uh, the objective was also to celebrate our achievements because as researchers in Africa, we always go around the world saying what we do. We never, we don't do that at home. Hmm? Uh, we don't share that with our junior researchers on the continent. So we we really need to to uh, uh, in in as to insist on what you have just said that the objective of that conference is to take stock of where we are, what we can do, what we can transmit to the junior researchers and where we need to to make efforts for the next steps. All right. Um, thank you. I see that a question is uh, coming in, and uh, it is uh, coming in from Lucia, who is working with um, the Sub-Saharan African Bureau of the International Spanish News Agency. And I think this is Lucia Blanco. So she says, I reach out to ask you which African leaders are expected to participate in the upcoming um, CPHI in Kigali. So perhaps I could uh, put that to uh, Prof. The Secretariat is better placed to 
sellers uh, where uh, the invitation has been sent, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, who has answered so far? Uh, the secretariat is better place to to answer that. All right. So, um, Ahmed, I put that question to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ian, and thank you, Lucia, for that question. Um, uh, let, let me start from the end. Uh, the end is um, we have planned for um, uh, all levels of leadership on the continent that will be able to make it, and uh, the host country. Uh, uh, can be able to give a, a confirmation for that, that whether it is heads of states or ministers, heads of the different agencies and institutions, not just on the continent, but globally, uh, whoever confirms to come, uh, uh, we are ready for that. Um, second is uh, we have invited heads of are not able at this stage to share names until confirmations have been uh, Uh, have been uh, done. Um, we we invited um, of different institutions that we work with on a on a, on a regular basis. Um, so the whole um, uh, leadership in public health um, and um, both at the technical and political level, we have made these invitations and we continue to receive confirmation. So I think um, closer to the conference, we will be able to share. Uh, after the confirmations have come in, um, uh, who exactly uh, will be able to grace uh, the event. Let me add here that um, uh, we have made provisions for uh, uh, remote um, uh, participation, uh, but we are encouraging everyone to come to Kigali. It is much, much easier, much better for you to be there in person, but we will be making provisions for live streaming for those who may not be able uh, uh, to attend uh, in person, particularly uh, you as uh, as journalists, but um, closer to the event, we will be sharing specific names. Uh, but right now, we are ready, and uh, we have planned for uh, every head of state, every minister, every head of institution that will be able to come to, to Kigali for the conference. Thank you. All right, uh, thank you. There is a hand up that has just um... okay, it has disappeared, but it was uh, Elisa Ange. So, Elisa, if you're having difficulties with the live connection, you can send in your question. So, while we wait for that uh, question from Elisa and or any other colleagues, um, there is the issue of the discussions that are happening in Niamey with regards to the Africa continental free trade area. And I think that value chains and things like that will be discussed. So, Perhaps Africa CDC, Dr. Ahmed, you can also just highlight for colleagues who are online the importance of that kind of conference and how it links in to the objectives of Rwanda. Sorry. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Wayne. So uh, the summit that is happening in Niamey this week uh, into the weekend is on industrialization. And, of course, the African continental free trade area a treaty and its implementation. A very core part of both um, sides of this coin, the industrialization and then the trade, um, is linked to our work as Africa CDC, work as ministries of health when we deal with health emergencies. Health products that are required for routine work and for emergency work are largely imported into, the, in, in, into Africa. 
and we have the ambition of manufacturing locally here on the continent all the health products or as much of the of it as we can that's why the industrialization part of the summit is key and the africa cdc is fully represented and we have a message for uh, the summit on industrialization where local manufacturing falls on the trade part uh, of the summit now where scfta is uh, uh, presenting some uh, proposals uh, again, Africa CDC is fully represented because we believe strongly that we should not be importing masks. We should not be importing PPEs because we have already shown we can be able to manufacture them on the continent. And if we can manufacture them on the continent, it means we can trade them on the continent. So on the trade part of the summit, we are encouraging um, uh, our member states uh, to um, uh, manufacture everything from the simplest to the most complex like vaccines and then we trade them using the platform that has already been established by the, the Continental Free Trade Area uh, Treaty. So on the trade part, we are also sending that very clear message that health products, particularly those we use in health emergencies, are a very key part of um, the trade uh, when the trade begins. We would like this to be one of the very first things that uh, that we do. But I would like to invite uh, Minister Angamije to speak a little about uh, what Rwanda is already doing uh, with, uh, in as far as manufacturing is concerned, because this links also directly to the discussions that are happening in Niamey this week around industrialization and, uh, and, and the trade. But uh, Minister Angamije, please. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Ahmed. Uh, it is true that... Uh, as I was presenting the, the agenda, uh, in summary, I, I talked about local production of uh, health commodities, uh, therapeutics, drugs, vaccines. And um, as you know, we, uh, as the government of Rwanda, we are in partnership with uh, BioNTech uh, for manufacturing uh, vaccines, in, in mRNA vaccines in Rwanda. Uh, it's a process, the process going on. Uh, what is interesting is to see how by setting conducive environment, especially uh, with uh, a stringent regulatory agency uh, for drugs, uh, it will attract and allow investors to invest in local production of these uh, medical commodities, pharmaceuticals, because if they are produced in a country where there is uh, a stringent regulatory agency, there is chances for having it exported uh, and uh, attracting potential funders, especially international funders, uh, to buy this product and, uh, and distribute uh, this product in Africa. Uh, uh, during time of COVID, we came to realize how we're very fragile, very depending on what was produced abroad from even simple items like masks and uh, cover roll and, uh, and tests, there are things we should fix from now. Then we need to set conducive environment if we want to be prepared for future pandemic for manufacturing uh, some of these items and then being enough ambitious to the point of planning even producing vaccines. By the way, as you know, this is the African Union agenda for a goal for having by 2040 manufacturing a good number of vaccines in Africa. 
So if you want really to, to reach that goal, there is a lot to do on scientific uh, part of it, but also key investment regarding infrastructures, human resource, uh, uh, regulatory agencies, all these are part of a package that uh, we should be discussing. And I'm happy that in Niamey, the summit of industrialization and trade, of course, is fed with uh, what we want to do and achieve as Africa by investing for local local production of pharmaceuticals. I think it goes with that vision of our head of state to reduce progressively the way we depend uh, with uh, external produced uh, commodities from abroad. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you. Um, Elisa has managed to come back. Elisa, good morning. Please tell us your news agency, ask your question, and also advise to whom it is directed. Elisa, hello. Okay, yeah, I think maybe Elisa is having some uh, challenges coming through. Prof, did I see your hand up? Uh, you are muted, Prof. Sorry, I tried to be disciplined. <laughs> it was uh, uh, simply to um, uh, highlight the importance of what uh, Honorable Minister and Dr. Hamed have just said now, uh, and that we insist on that is for two reasons. It will it will push researchers, African researchers, who go outside the continent to serve other continents, to try to find their their place here. So <clears throat> this conference, Professor Hamed and Honorable Minister, should be also a convening of high-level researchers or, or that are Af- of African origin, even if they have took other nationalities for uh, convenience of life, to attract them to come back in, in Africa because they are needed. And uh, if you can have a list of them and invite them just to, to be hosted for the conference, <clears throat> it could be a very good booster for the medical health researchers on the continent. Explain to them that they went out because Africa was not ready to have to use them at the level of technicity they were, but now Africa is ready. All right, uh, thank you, Prof. I will give Isa one more try to see if we can get to talk um, to each other. Elisa, um, hello. Yes, can you hear me? Very clearly, please go ahead. Perfect. I'm sorry. Uh, I was having uh, my mic was having issues. Um, I wanted to bring uh, 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 Honorable Dr. Ngamije back to um, the manufacturing um, uh, of vaccines in Kigali. Um, so since last year, I wanted. Uh, I'm looking for an update. Um, we we saw uh, partnerships and, 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 and uh, agreements signed between Rwanda and BioNTech. And according to officials at the time, it was, we were supposed to see action by July uh, last year. But uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a fresh update and if 
have have used had uh, any challenges that um, uh, came in in the way of that. Um, I'm also uh, wondering if there are any new partnerships. Last uh, weeks ago, we we saw the Prime Minister of Barbados here in Kigali talking about uh, manufacturing vaccines in, with in, uh, with Rwanda. And uh, I would like to understand, is there an update from last year's um, agreement? Do we have any new partnerships? And is this conference uh, going to bring any, 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 anything new or any new partnership? And I would also like to have any update, a fresh update on how Rwanda is prepared or, or the current, um, the current steps to keep, uh, uh, to keep Ebola out of Rwanda. Since we are having this conference, I would imagine uh, that it's going to be tight. So uh, uh, really just an update. Thank you. Okay, Honorable Minister. Thank you, Hans, for, for your questions. Um, so our, we are implementing our roadmap that we agreed uh, with uh, BioNTech uh, as far as our partnership is concerned. Uh, as you might be uh, suspecting, you know, you can't overnight uh, complete a factory for manufacturing uh, vaccines uh, since we signed the agreement with, uh, with them. So we, everything is on, on it's like uh, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are well implementing the roadmap as planned. We have some key milestones to, to achieve. Uh, they started already. Uh, I can see that you are from Rwanda. So in the area where uh, the, the, the construction is planned, work started, uh, and it's beyond only work because there is a component of human resource capacity building. That component also is, is, is part of the, the process uh, for having uh, runners uh, who will be working uh, with uh, their colleagues from Germany. So all this process we're working on the capacity, on human resource capacity building. But also there is this legal framework for getting some laws uh, voted regarding clinical trials. Uh, we are doing it already. And of course, reinforcing Rwanda Food and Drug Authority as a, a regulatory agency, as I said it a uh, few minutes ago. So all these components, we are, we are fixing them. Uh, I believe that uh, uh, let's just wait and see what will happen in coming uh, two years. As, as agreed with uh, our partner, I can tell you that uh, already having the partnership with BioNTech, we do have uh, potential partners who are willing to come and invest also uh, for locally manufacturing uh, some commodities which should be used for the administration of those vaccines. We have uh, interested companies from different uh, continents. Uh, so the, the ecosystem is in place progressively, I believe. Uh, in the future, uh, you will see uh, all this piece of uh, puzzle together when we'll be starting to manufacture vaccines, but also uh, pharmaceuticals products uh, and, 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 and other commodities. So uh, for Ebola, we are prepared. Uh, we are doing in partnership with Africa CBC, WHO. We have a plan. Uh, to, for the prevention of uh, cross-border uh, cross transmission, 
from our neighbor. We have what we need to, to implement regarding plan or plan that we agreed in EAC region, but also with the support of Africa CDC and WHO, as I said. So it's good that already we are getting good news from uh, uh, Dr. Ahmed that uh, for now, now we send new cases, but we keep vigilant. We are very vigilant uh, as any other country in the region. This is a normal process, and we are closely discussing with our colleague from Uganda. We have a platform where we get information from, from Minister Ruth. So uh, you can be think that uh, we are safe so far, and we are doing whatever is possible to contain the pandemic. But if it arrives, we are ready to fight and to face cases if we have any single case in Rwanda. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Minister. It is now time yeah. for us to hear yeah. the main headline points. Um, yeah. Let me make an addition. Yes, yes. Let me add something. A very important question that are being asked there. Um, I think let, let me start from the end about Ebola. Uh, it's not a major concern for the conference because, as uh, the minister says, everything is in place. In fact, um, uh, during my briefing, I was saying that we are strengthening the, the, the neighbors' surveillance uh, capacity so that uh, nothing slips through. So Ebola is not one of the major uh, concerns uh, for this conference, and we still are going to hold it in person because everything is in place. But the question around um, which touches on uh, uh, high excellence, the premise of various wars uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Rwanda recently, um, you may recall that during the COP27, uh, there was an event um, that brought together Africa and other Caribbean countries. Um, there's a very close collaboration uh, that's going on between African countries and the Caribbean. Indeed, ourselves as Africa CDC and the CARICOM Secretariat, uh, we are working very closely so that um, what we are doing on the continent has a direct uh, positive effect in the Caribbean um, as well. You may also recall that um, uh, during our negotiations as the Africa Vaccines Acquisition Task Team, and Caribbean countries were part of the African um, negotiation block. Uh, whatever we negotiated was also available to the Caribbean uh, countries. So we are very, very close in that way. And looking at the manufacturing ambition, um, a decision has been taken that Africa and the Caribbean are going to be working together to take the manufacturing, not just of uh, emergency uh, um, products, but also uh, non-emergency products, the routine products are going to be a part of this. So a lot will come out of uh, this particular collaboration that you're seeing uh, in a very positive way for Africa and also uh, for, the, for, uh, for Barbados. And finally is um, to reassure, uh, not just um, Elisa, but um, uh, the whole continent, indeed the world, that um, the plans that Africa has put in place, and I'm talking about the whole continent, not just Africa CDC, and not just uh, the government of Rwanda and all those front-runner countries that um, are doing quite a lot in, in as far as expanding the vaccines manufacturing enterprises concerned, but the whole continent is now adjusting itself to be able to identify its priorities and manufacture them on the continent. This the decision has been taken, the process has begun, 
and you will see and hear a lot more in the coming weeks and, uh, and months around the concrete plans that we have to manufacture specific items here on the continent um, uh, and uh, to ensure that we have access uh, to what we need. So that decision has been made, and we are going to be progressively implementing uh, all these. And the conference is, is going to discuss uh, some of these issues in, uh, in some detail, and we are looking forward to our experts uh, giving recommendations on, um, uh, you know, where we can be able to increase the momentum uh, we are looking forward to all of you being in Kigali uh, in December. Uh, thank you. All right. It's time now for us to bring our press briefing to an end for today. And as usual, we will give uh, two minutes each to uh, the panelists to perhaps just give us the headline points that they would most like the media to take away from the briefing today. So let me start with uh, Professor Agnes Binagualo, uh, your summary on uh, uh, the issues around the conference before we hand over to the minister and then end with uh, Dr. Ahmed. Uh, thank you. Um... Uh, to all of you, huh? because uh, I'm a very, very happy co-chair, and I can talk also on behalf of my other co-chair, uh, Professor Senai, who was not able to join us uh, for this time. She's traveling. Uh, things are going very well, as I told you, in our point of view. It's a very good continuation of what we did last year. Last year, it was not a face-to-face. It's uh, because of COVID, so it's going to be the first time Africa, uh, the public, uh, public health actors in Africa are coming together as a continent. So for me, what I can say to the press, this is a great moment. Normally, never forget, we all go outside the continent to say what and to exp- expose what we do. This time we are coming as a continent in, in our continent to do it. <clears throat> with three years delay because of COVID, but we are doing it and at a very good time, at a time when the continent is talking about boost, uh, to boost our health workforce because we need more in all the area of the workforce. We need to increase the quantity, the quality. So this conference will have an impact on all this. Uh, workforce, researchers, manufacturing, And it's the first time also that we will come together as a continent around that during this period, because it's not the only conference. Uh, You understand that there is one coming this week that will also englobe um, uh, Consenda. So it's very exciting. Uh, The press should support it, Um, uh, disseminate it largely, because it's very good that the health professionals, the health researchers, the health educators, uh, are informed and uh, really uh, ignited and enthusiastic by that. All right. Uh, thank you, Prof. Honorable Minister, your key points. Thank you, Winnie. Uh, I just want to recall the theme of the conference, which is about preparedness for future pandemics and uh, post-pandemic recovery. Uh, we are not yet out of covid uh, but we were able to contain it and uh, 
respond properly as, as, as a continent. We have a lot to share. Uh, this conference will be an opportunity to bring together uh, scientists, researchers, policymakers, uh, public sector, private sector, community organizations. Everybody will be here uh, to, to share and to learn a lot of what scientists will be publishing, what they will be presenting as uh, findings of their own researchers. Uh, so we should not really miss this opportunity. Number two, uh, the social component of the conference is well cared. You will not, you will not be bored. We make sure that we have nice time, nice experience in Kigali. Uh, the, the, as I said, the, the schedule is arranged to facilitate uh, this nice experience of your stay in Kigali. And uh, finally, uh, given the number of people we'll be attending, from uh, uh, potentially some head of state, ministers, uh, uh, scientists, and uh, private sectors, you have opportunity for making business, for making partnership, new partnership. So you, you have a lot of people in the same place, so you can target whoever you want to partner with and uh, start new business with, uh, depending what you do either in pharmaceuticals area, as a scientist, people from universities will be here. Uh, please be here. You are welcome. You will enjoy. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much, Minister. Now, finally, let me give the floor to um, Dr. Ahmed. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wayne, and thank you, uh, Professor Vanyas. Thank you very much, uh, Minister Rangabiji, for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much. Uh, Mirawi is uh, leading our um, uh, Ebola virus outbreak in Uganda. Um, three things that I would like to share in summary. First is on the conference. I think um, both uh, my co-panelists have uh, uh, made a very impassioned plea for you to be there. The only thing I will add is the beautiful Swahili saying uh, that uh, goes, Kosa Uchekwe, which means um, please don't, don't, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss this conference. A lot has been put together there. Um, second is on um, uh, COVID. Vaccination rates are going up. We are progressively adjusting the way in which we are presenting our data. And our focus in the coming weeks is going to be specifically the group that is 12 years and above. And our data will also reflect exactly that, uh, 12 years and above rather than the whole population because we can't vaccinate um, uh, newborns. So we'll be focusing on 12 years and above uh, but we are urging everyone to get out there and get vaccinated so we can bring COVID under full uh, um, uh, control. Finally is the outbreak in Uganda. Um, uh, the government has done a very commendable job. The partners are providing very good support, and we are asking um, uh, for um, understanding as um, we uh, try our best to wrap up this particular outbreak. Uh, in Uganda, the numbers are um, showing us that uh, what we are doing is working. But um, uh, we must remember that the virus is with us all the time. And the virus is usually not the problem. The problem is when it starts circulating in the wrong place in large quantities. That is when it is a problem. But otherwise, all these viruses are with us. If they are contained, they are not a problem. 
if they are not contained, then they become a problem, and we don't want them to become a problem. So um, bear with us as we continue to bring uh, this latest outbreak uh, under control. And finally, finally, Wayne, is um, uh, to uh, say a very big congratulations to uh, the government and the people of Rwanda. Um, they were uh, selected to host the Africa Medicines Agency, which is a sister institution of Africa CDC, and we are really looking forward to that agency playing its part in not just the manufacturing we have talked about, but also in uh, supporting uh, all the countries on the continent in emergency preparedness and, when required, during emergency response. So a uh, very big congratulations to Rwanda, and we are looking forward uh, to the African Medicine Agency joining um, uh, the Africa Union family of uh, institutions uh, to strengthen the way in which the continent prepares, responds, and becomes resilient uh, when it comes to uh, public health emergencies. Otherwise, uh, thank you, uh, Wayne, for all the moderation and uh, for those who are participating as well. Thank you. And uh, that was a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, broadcasting uh, from uh, Kigali, Rwanda, uh, in preparation uh, for the Public Health in Africa Conference, the second annual conference. The one last year was held uh, virtually. This one is being held in uh, Kigali, uh, Rwanda. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. This special edition of our program uh, for Sunday, November 24th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And, of course, uh, we're going to uh, right now take a break uh, with the Soul Clan. And we'll be back with our concluding segment of our program today. Tell me! 
tell you something. This is a true story. I got one sister. Lord, and eight of us boys. I was 13 years old, yeah. Oh, yeah. Before I got my first Christmas card. And let me tell you this. I remember the first day I was six years old, y'all Mama took me to school Listen to me Things were so tough back then, y'all I had to wear my dad's old broken shoes <laughs> Music from the Soul Clan uh, from uh, the late 1960s, uh, aggregation uh, of uh, Southern Soul musicians uh, such as Arthur Conley, Solomon Burke, uh, Joe Tex, along with Don Covey. Yeah, that's how I feel. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, November 24th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to bring you a rare archival audio file of an interview with uh, American Indian Movement political prisoner Leonard Peltier, who has been held in detention uh, since the late 1970s illegally inside the United States in various uh, federal prisons. We're going to play this uh, interview uh, today. Uh, let's listen in to the story of uh, Leonard Peltier. Dictionary defines Thanksgiving as an annual United States holiday observed on fourth Thursday of November as a day of giving thanks and feasting. It commemorates the pilgrims' celebration of the Good Harvest of 1621. But some in this country find little or nothing to give thanks for. Leonard Piltier is one such person. I'm Leonard Peltier. I'm a Chippewa, Sioux, and French Indian from 
uh, North Dakota, Turtle Mountain Chippewa Reservation, which is my father's reservation. My mother is a Sioux from the Fort Cotton Sioux Reservation. And uh, I am now serving two consecutive life terms for first-degree murder in the uh, United States Penitentiary, Leavenworth, Kansas. The incident for which he's serving time occurred on June 25, 1975 on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. I was living on the Pine Ridge Reservation that day. I was living on the Pine Ridge Reservation before that day. I lived on the Pine Ridge Reservation after that day. But we were there at the request of the chiefs and the elders again who made a plea for help because they could not get no investigations into the terrorists and murderous acts committed by Dick Wilson's private police force. People were there. That's why AIM people was there. What is the American Indian Movement, or AIM? The American Indian Movement is an organization that was organized in uh, 1968. Uh, it's an organization, a Native American organization, that... Uh, uh, has been fighting for uh, treaty rights, uh, sovereign rights of uh, Indian nations, uh, discrimination, uh, dual system of justice in the courtrooms, and uh, fighting basically for human rights for Indian people. Well, we were calling for the total uh, abolishment of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, because the Bureau of Indian Affairs at that time had total control over Indian people's lives. They were, we were basically wards of the government. They controlled our lives to the extent where they not only told us what education we were going to receive and uh, uh, our land, we couldn't lease it to who we wanted to without first getting the, the approval of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, we were uh, working very hard to oppose them, to get them abolished. Uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, for years and years, has been nothing but disrupt and destroy Native American culture, uh, reservations, and the corruption is, is, is uh, abundant. The man running the tribal council on the Pine Ridge Reservation was none other than Richard Dick Wilson. Peter Matheson, in his book In a Spirit of Crazy Horse, describes Wilson as a paunchy, pale-skinned man with dark glasses, a military haircut, and a heavy drinking habit, who was violently anti-AIM. Wilson's re-election to the Oglala Tribal Council in February of 1974 was declared invalid by the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Wilson simply dismissed the Civil Rights Commission as, quote, a bunch of hoodlums, and used his private police force to terrorize AIM members and their families. Indian term that describes Native American that helps white people is a scout or an apple, red on the outside, white on the inside. When you oppress a nation, when you oppress a people, you will always have those that will just to survive, to be able to feed their families, to be able to live relatively comfortable, will turn against their own. 
We've seen this happen repeatedly through history. I mean, it's not just with Indian people, but it's through history. All races of people have experienced it. We know during the Holocaust that there was Jewish people that were security and uh, helped uh, uh, with some of the atrocities committed in those camps. Only one day before the shootout at Oglala between American Indian movement and the FBI, Dick Wilson awarded a large piece of Indian land to the United States government in the northwestern section of the Pine Ridge Reservation. This act was unlawful due to the clause in the 1868 treaty, which stipulated that three-fourths of all the adult males had to approve any transfer of Lakota land. Leonard Peltier describes the importance of the 1868 treaty. Uh, the importance of that is that the Black Hills for one area plus a large millions and millions of acre, acres was uh, to uh, belong to the Lakota, the Great Sioux, uh, Lakota Nation, <clears throat> or it was there, it's better known as the, uh, the Great Sioux Nation. Uh, the government came in and annexed uh, the Black, Black Hills and millions and millions of acres of land. And that was a total violation of the 1868 treaty, and this is why we are pushing so hard to get the 1868 treaty uh, honored and uh, get that get that land back to the people. Can you name one treaty that the United States government has not broken with the Indians? None whatsoever. On the day of the shootout, Leonard Peltier was in camp. A distance away from the Jumping Bull Ranch where most of the AIM members were staying. How did you initially become aware of the two FBI agents on the reservation? Well, the shooting started. Who started shooting first? I, I, I believe they did. I, I, I believe they did. I wasn't there when the shooting first started, but I believe I was told by certain people that they started it. How how long did the shooting last? It started from uh, approximately uh, ten or eleven o'clock that morning, and lasted till eight thirty nine o'clock that night. There was still shooting going on that night. In fact, it lasted even longer. The next day, there was other still gunfire going out in different areas. Different people were fighting with the FBI and other vigilante groups. Why were those two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Reservation that day? Well, they said that they were there supposedly uh, looking for Jimmy Eagle because uh, he stole a pair of cowboy boots. But we have evidence from uh, uh, the Freedom of Information Act uh, files that uh, they were uh, 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 performing... Uh, 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 Intelligence uh, against our community. They were uh, providing this with the goon squads. They were uh, planning an attack on the goon, on the Jumping Bull Ranch, plus a couple of other places where eight people were concentrated. And uh, they had planned on an assault on the place. We have uh, testimony now from one of the leaders, the main leaders of the goon squads, Mr. Dwayne Brewer, who testifies on tape that he was provided with live ammunition, armored piercing ammunition, sophisticated weaponry, and uh, intelligence. 
planning on hitting the compound or the ranch. I keep using their term, but the, the, the ranch. They had planned on insulting the ranch. Why do you believe they were after the ranch? Well, because AIM people were there. American Indian Movement people were there. Based on the government intelligence that the reservation had become an armed camp and fearful of the opposition, the BIA police, the FBI, the state police, and the goon squads loyal to Dick Wilson were in the area ready to crush militant activism of the American Indian movement. Why did AIM pursue stockpiling weapons and violence instead of using historical nonviolent success such as civil rights movement? As we all know, or at least uh, the people that don't know about Indian history, Indian, Indian people were not militaristic people before the Europeans came. And each time that the Indian people uh, attempted to make peace, which is over, which uh, over 360 some treaties were contested to, uh, violence was used against them. Every time Indian people complain or protest, uh, violence is used against them. Uh, and uh, people uh, within the Indian movement decided and took a position that they would no longer allow themselves or their people to be murdered, abused. Uh, and whatever, they would defend themselves. During the shootout, one Indian man was killed and two FBI agents were wounded. The evidence suggests that as the government reinforcements closed in, both FBI men were then shot execution style at close range with a high-powered rifle. From your previous statements, we know your position, but for the record, did you kill those FBI agents? No, I did not. I did not. Since Leonard Peltier denies having killed the agents, I asked him if he has any knowledge of why these two FBI men were murdered. Uh, there was nobody murdered. The only one that was murdered there was the Indian person. The Indian person. A federal judge himself has said that uh, that uh, the FBI was just as responsible for what happened there as the Indians. So there was nobody. There was no FBI agents murdered there. But it was a war. And a war. There's no murders. Do you know the man who killed those agents? I'm not going to answer that question. According to the book In the Spirit of Crazy Horse, its author Peter Matheson met with the man who claimed to be the killer of the agents. 
The meeting convinced Matheson that this Mr. X was telling the truth. I asked Leonard Pilcher if he had personal commitment to this Mr. X, or was this some kind of an Indian code of silence? Well, it's, uh, it's a code of silence uh, to my nation. Can you elaborate on that, please? To my nation. I mean, uh, I'm not an Ollie Nort. I'm not a rat. I'm not a snitch. And I don't turn against my own nation. My nation was at war with the United States government. Still is, to some extent. And to commit treason against repeat, to become a rat, a snitch, is uh, to commit treason. And I have no intentions of doing that for nobody. If my life is to die here in prison, then that's what's going to happen. I'm going to die here. Do you believe you I mean, can... That's quite... should be quite simple for people to understand. We are not a nation of weak people. We, you know, the American society teaches you to tell on your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, and your fathers. Uh, that don't happen in the, Indian world, in the Indian world. As the government attempted to secure the area, some of the Native American warriors fled the reservation. Amongst them was Leonard Peltier. Is it true that you were using a van in your escape that was registered to Marlon Brando? I, uh, uh, it was registered in his name, but it did no, no longer belong to him. He eventually made his way to Canada. I asked him why he left the United States if he was innocent. It's quite obvious that Indian people uh, can't get a fair trial around here in the United States anyway. Even though the government could not identify the trigger man, the original indictment named four defendants on the charges of aiding and abetting in the killings of agents Kohler and Williams. By January of 1976, three were already in custody. Bob Rabadou, Daryl Butler, and Jimmy Eagle, with the fourth Leonard Peltier still at large. Daryl Butler and Bob Rabadou to trial together and were acquitted by jury who believed they acted in self-defense on the charges of aiding and abetting. Few weeks later, the government dropped the charges against Jimmy Eagle. Leonard Peltier was put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. I asked Leonard Peltier why he believes the FBI went after him. Because I was the last one to go to court. They knew Jimmy Eagle wasn't even in the area, but yet they held uh, the indictment and charges over for over a year, and that I was the last possible chance for them to get a conviction. So uh, they, uh, uh, we have documentation, Freedom of Information documents, where they say drop the uh, drop the charges against Jimmy Eagle and put the full weight of the American government behind. As a fugitive in Canada, Peltier was eventually apprehended on a tip that he believes came from one of his own people. Roger Clark, Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada, remembers the extradition hearings. Well, as you know, the Leonard Peltier case goes back a long way. Uh, in fact, Amnesty was involved even uh, as early as 1976-77, and at that time, if you will recall, uh, Leonard Peltier fled to Canada, and there were held uh, a series of extradition hearings in this country. Uh, in 1976, 
Amnesty International made its position clearly felt with regard to that case. First of all, that we felt strongly that within the United States that there was persecution and harassment by law enforcement agencies of leaders of the American Indian movement and other American Indian leaders. This was well established as a pattern and we had observed it in other cases. And we felt at the time that uh, Leonard Peltier was drawn into that same pattern. He was himself, as you know, a leading figure in the American Indian movement. And the fact that he was now being sought for his alleged involvement in the killing of the two FBI agents back in 1975 brought some of these issues to the fore. Now, we were also concerned at the time about the evidence that was being produced in support of that extradition. There were serious doubts about the nature of the evidence, and there, in fact, it, as it uh, subsequently uh, turned out, that the evidence had been either suppressed or presented uh, falsely by the FBI. Uh, nevertheless, the extradition was uh, upheld by the uh, Canadian court, and uh, Peltier was returned to the United States. I was extradited from Canada on fraudulent, fabricated evidence. The United States government says our prosecutors make statements saying that there was enough evidence to extradite me without the Myrtle Poor Bear uh, affidavits. That is totally untrue. That is a lie. If it was true, why did they manufacture a witness? What, why did they create a witness? Uh, they uh, manufactured evidence to bring me back from Canada. They sophisticatedly kidnapped me using their judiciary system. Leonard Peltier claims the witnesses for the prosecution were manipulated into giving false testimony. I asked him what other evidence was used against him once he was brought to trial in the United States. Uh, the so-called murder weapon, which they call claimed was the most critical evidence against me until that was proven it was fabricated. And uh, in 1985, before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, when the three-judge panel questioned the prosecutor to what just what was Mr. Peltier charged with as we cannot find no evidence in the record of first-degree murder. The government was forced to respond with, Your Honor, the government, the United States government does not know who killed our agents, nor do we know what participation Leonard Peltier played in. Peltier was convicted and sentenced to two life terms in a federal penitentiary. Roger Clark of Amnesty International. Basically, our position has not changed since that time. We have maintained that the evidence used uh, was, uh, was not uh, correct, was not uh, the, the appropriate evidence, that there were serious doubts that were raised in some of that evidence. And uh, we have believed and still believe that uh, justice would be served were Peltier to be given a new trial. One of the key figures in Leonard Peltier's persecution was the well-connected, 
future governor of South Dakota, William Jenklau. Peltier accuses Jenklau of personal vendetta against the American Indians. Well, not only me, not just me, I'm in a personal uh, vendetta against the American Indian movement. It was a uh, 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 tool used to uh, advance his political career, and it's what you, it's what, and it's precisely what he did. Leonard Peltier believes that William Jenklau became the Attorney General and then the Governor of South Dakota based on his performance against American Indian movement. Peltier further accuses Jenklau of a past history of anti-Indian conduct going back to as far as 
the FBI concluded that, quote, it was impossible to determine anything, that there was insufficient evidence, allegations were unfounded, end quote, and filed on this matter to be closed. The case resurfaced in 1974. Jancida, now 22, testified again, and the tribal judge, Mario Gonzalez, disbarred William Janklow from practicing law on the Rosebud Reservation. Janklow denies the charges and, according to Mario Gonzalez, refused to appear in tribal court. Despite these accusations, William Janklow became the Attorney General and then the Governor, while Leonard Piltier went to prison. Uh, the other appeal is I have Senator Inouye, uh, Congressman Don Edwards, uh, who are asking the president to grant me clemency or to mitigate my sentences. Uh, that's basically on hold <clears throat> until uh, the court uh, litigation is exhausted. I asked Leonard about the present state of the American Indian movement. We are now uh, basically working in the political arena. We're uh, concentrating on our economics, concentrating on getting certain laws passed to benefit Native people, and uh, that's really what that's basically the the area that the American Indian movement is working in today. Is there a future for the movement through nonviolence? Uh, well, we certainly have been doing that for the last 10 years. We've been uh, nonviolent for the last 10, 10 years, showing again that we are a nonviolent organization, a nonviolent people. I asked Piltier if sovereignty was another critical issue for the AIM struggle. Well, yes, we are a sovereign nation of people and have our own forms of government. It's a, just, you know, to deny this, that this exists today, is uh, totally false. But uh, uh, what forms would we take? Well, we would basically, we don't intend to set up borders. We don't intend to set up uh, uh, passports where you have to have a passport to leave the reservation. But we want our own self-determination and our own sovereignty to govern our own lives, which is what we're moving towards today. Numerous reservations are setting up their own legal systems, our own appeal courts, our own, uh, you know, we're setting, it, we're setting it all up now. It is being organized. We're building our own economics, and uh, we are slowly developing ourselves into a sovereign nation of people. But a lot of states, and even the president of the United States, Bush, has now made a public statement that the United States government will start dealing with Indian tribes from a nation-to-nation level. So we are making those, those, those gains, and we are uh, moving in that direction. But as far as uh, going back to the 
the old type of culture, the old days of riding buffalo, I mean, riding horses and killing buffalo instead of living in teepees, that's not what we're looking for. We know we have to modernize our societies, which is what we're doing. But we still can retain and retain our culture and our identity and our, and our, and our Indian, Indianness, is what we call it. And uh, that is what we're striving for. Since this is Thanksgiving, I asked Leonard to comment on the origins of this holiday from a Native American perspective. The origins of it was created by the pilgrims who were grateful for the, what the Indian people did for them. You know, showed them how to survive, showed them fed them when they were hungry, and showed them how to become farmers. And in gratefulness, they uh, created this thing called Thanksgiving. They had a big dinner for the Indians. Uh, so unfortunately for the Indians, over the years, we have nothing to celebrate on Thanksgiving. And many of us do not participate in uh, Thanksgiving Day holiday. A lot of us fast. A lot of people be eating, but it's only because today a lot of people are giving out free turkeys to the reservations and everything else. And this is a, a meal comes once a year for them, so it's a time for them to get something to eat, and they'll, they'll, eat, they'll eat the meal. A lot of us will uh, uh, not eat till the next day. We'll cook our free turkeys up and everything else the following day. But again, Indian people don't have anything to be grateful for. And all you have to do is just look at the programs that they've done. Uh, the TV programs that have done shows on uh, on the reservations to see the conditions that is happening. Meanwhile, after almost 16 years, Leonard Peltier remains in prison. I asked him if he is allowed to perform any of the Indian religious ceremonies. I'm only allowed to do uh, perform uh, the sweat lodge ceremony. Everything else, all the other ceremonies are not allowed in prison. Leonard's very excited about the recent support shown by the 55 United States Senators and 60 members of the Canadian Parliament. They signed a friend of the court petition requesting a new trial. Alberta Megliore, Green Party's representative to the Italian Parliament, has put forth a resolution petitioning European Parliament to nominate Leonard Piltier for the 1992 Nobel Peace Prize. In the Soviet Union alone, 17 million signatures were collected to free Leonard Peltier. I asked Leonard if he wanted further help from the public. I need people to write letters to uh, the uh, 
the President asking for clemency, a letter of support to Senator Inouye in the Senate. Uh, I need financial help, uh, which you can write to and send donations to uh, the LEDC Box 583, Lawrence, Kansas, 66044. Phone number is 913-842-5774. Uh, we have uh, information that could be provided to you, sent to you, uh, to give you more detailed information on what you can do to help. In Leavenworth, the prisoner gets to use the phone only for 20 minutes, and our time was up long ago. We had to say quick goodbyes, and I thanked Leonard on behalf of St. Louis. We hope to see you free very soon. Thank you very much, and I... I would like to again tell your listeners that if at times I sound uh, that I'm irritated or uh, upset, I am. I'm upset at the, not at the person that's doing the interview or at the Jew that's listening to me. I'm upset because of what happened to me and because of where I'm at. Do you believe you are in jail solely for political reasons? Yes solely for political reasons. As I said, the government's been over six years now since the government has admitted they do not know what they have me in prison for, except that I was very, uh, uh, be, being a very good organizer very, and a strong advocate for Indian sovereignty. A man who still awaits freedom, Leonard Piltier believes he's a political prisoner. Yet, the phone privileges expired just like any other inmate at the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. All right, bro, I gotta go. That was a report on the uh, struggle of Leonard Peltier and the American Indian Movement. That's going to conclude our program for today. We'll close out with Lee Morgan's Sextet. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. <laughs>